0: Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The most recent good news in the campaign against ISIS is the reduction of attacks in North America and Europe. In 2017, there were 27 attacks. But this year, there's only four. If you dig a little deeper, though, as my next guest continually does, the progress in the data that that implies gets a lot less emphatic. With me is Rukmini Kalamaki. She is the New York Times foreign correspondent who's followed ISIS and al-Qaeda since 2014. She's also now a non-resident fellow at the Program on Extremism at George Washington University. She created the hit New York Times podcast, caliphate and her investigative work on the ISIS files, documented how ISIS is governed, and she's in town to speak at Dominican University tomorrow at 7 p.m. Thanks for joining us. Nice to meet you. Thanks for having me, Jerome. I think everyone wonders how wrapped up this Al-Qaeda thing is because the territory has shrunk to almost nothing. The attacks are way, way down. Right. And people probably feel and politicians get up and say this thing is practically behind us.
1: That's certainly what politicians are saying. But I've been around uh, on this beat long enough to remember when they said that uh, about al-Qaeda. Uh, and they said that about al-Qaeda um, right after 2011 when Osama bin Laden was killed. And in fact, uh, it was it was not the case at all. Um, from, from that point on, al-Qaeda went on to grab half of the country of Mali, uh, um, significant sections uh, of Yemen, of Syria. They did the Charlie Hebdo attack, um, and they remain a potent force today. So too with ISIS. We now have a situation where most of the territory that they held in Iraq and Syria has been erased. And I don't want to downplay that. That is a big deal. Uh, It was the territory that allowed this group to make quite literally billions of dollars from taxation and from the other revenue streams that they controlled. Um, But territory is not the only way that this group projects its force. It has now simply gone back to being an insurgency. Uh, It is carrying out attacks um, all over Iraq. In three Iraqi provinces, attacks are now higher than they were a year ago. Um, And they're continuing to grow in other theaters around the world, in West Africa, in Afghanistan, in parts of Southeast Asia.
0: One of the interesting things about your reporting in the ISIS files was so amazing because it documented how good they got at being a Governing force. Sure, it was. It's kind of remarkable. And Now sure. these all, all these extremely competent people right. are out, still out there. They're not all dead. Right. They, they went other places, and they are going to do other things.
1: The United Nations um, and uh, the Inspector General of the Pentagon uh, both came out with reports um, in recent weeks, where they now estimate that the total number of ISIS fighters is up to around thirty thousand, just in Iraq and Syria. If that figure is correct, that is a higher estimate than the CIA believed ISIS had uh, in 2014, which was really at the height of their power. So that gives you a sense of the problem that that still remains ahead. Um, Yes, they've lost their territory, but their numbers are still enormously large, and they continue to, to plot attacks and to attempt to carry them out.
0: Their leader, Mr. Baghdadi, of course, was thought to be killed many times, and recently was found to be alive.
1: I never thought he had been killed. <laughs> um, there's been there's been an, a lot of false reporting uh, yep. about about Baghdadi, but um, but sure enough, um, he resurfaced in an audio tape uh, that was just released uh, recently, where he references events that had just occurred. So it's clear that the that the recording is contemporaneous, and yes, he he is still alive.
0: So their leadership's intact. They've got lots of interesting people who know how to govern. And they're yeah. um, out there doing attacks in Iraq right. at, a, at a clip that we don't even right. comprehend right now.
1: The most th- – there's a couple of recent attacks that are that are of note. Um, in Tajikistan uh, uh, um, just over a month and a half ago uh, – Uh, a group of fighters that had pledged allegiance to the Islamic State hunted down a group of Western cyclists. Among them were were two Americans and ran them over uh, on the side of the road. Um, After running them over, they got out and stabbed them to death. Tajikistan is a country that has sent a very large number of fighters to, to the Islamic State. But up until this incident, they had never had a single terrorist attack. So you're seeing territories that never had an ISIS attack having them now after the fall of the so-called caliphate um also recently, we saw an attack on a military parade in Iran. There was some question about about the Islamic State's claim for that attack because the language that the fighters used in claiming um, that act of violence was very odd. They weren't using the right terms. But the Washington Post has just reported that Iran has now carried out um, airstrikes uh, against ISIS targets um, in, in, in Syria, suggesting that the Iranian government believes that ISIS was behind it.
0: So... It looks like the ISIS um, game plan is moving into different territory that it's never even been in before. That's
1: that's the problem with this group. Um, I think I think one metaphor for it is is like a cancer. It keeps on metastasizing. Um, it spores. Its its um, its cells keep on on growing and um, and and going to other places. And and this is I think the policy problem that we have not figured out how to address. How do you contain this group? It makes sense to take away the territory that they're holding because we know that the territory is how they make money. It makes sense to go after their leadership because obviously their leadership um, is charismatic and uh, and has has significance to to their members. We're doing all of those things, and yet the problem keeps on multiplying.
0: When we see the number that I started with, this number of attacks in the U.S. and Europe down to four, yes. what does that mean to us? Because it doesn't count yes. those two cyclists in Tajikistan necessarily right. Who, right. who were um, U.S. people and sure. were certainly – and you did a profile of them, very nice people who were on a global yeah. track cycling. Uh, yes. They're really remarkably nice people. Yes, um, what, what does that number mean?
1: So on the one hand, it means that so those numbers um, are specifically for North America and Europe. And in North America and Europe, there has been a significant decrease in the number of ISIS attacks. The thing that, that um, is not unpacked uh, in that is the fact that the number of attempted attacks has remained the same. So what analysts are telling me is that what has happened is that law enforcement has just gotten better at intercepting these plots. They're now, they're now infiltrating the networks in which, in which ISIS operates. They're in the chat rooms uh, where they're talking to each other, and they're just much better than they were in 2014 and 2015 at getting ahead of the curve. What it doesn't show is a reduction in the ISIS threat. ISIS is still trying to hit us just as much as they were before. And, of course, that's just North America and Europe. If you're an American like myself who travels all the time, the threat is now is now in many parts of the globe. The threat is in West Africa. The threat is in Tajikistan. The threat is in Iraq and Syria. The threat is even in Southeast Asia.
0: I'm talking with Rukmini Kalamaki. She's a New York Times foreign correspondent who's followed ISIS and al-Qaeda since 2014 Uh, She's in Chicago to speak at Dominican University tomorrow at 7 p.m. I wanted to ask you a little bit about the ISIS files, which was such a remarkable thing. Um, I'm sure a lot of people read the series. You've been going through the garbage of militants since yes. you were in Mali. That's right. Explain the why you do this, and it was painstaking to get all this interpreted sure. and analyzed by people, and try sure. to figure out why. Why would you want to do that?
1: <laughs> so I stumbled into this beat uh, in in 2013. Uh, 2013 was the year that French forces went into Mali to try to flush out a group of Al Qaeda fighters who had taken over much of the north of the country, and. I, at that point, was very new to this beat. I covered it much like every other reporter, meaning that I called officials. I called people in Washington, at the Pentagon, at the State Department. I called the political attache at the local embassy. And from those sources, I created a narrative of what this group was, which I later realized was almost completely incorrect. The narrative that Washington sources were pushing um, in 2013 and 2012 uh, was that Al-Qaeda had been decimated. This was right after the death of Osama bin Laden. And they were saying that these little groups of fighters that were carrying the Al-Qaeda name in different parts of the world were in fact just just groups of criminals and thugs who had taken on the name opportunistically and that there was no real connective tissue back to Al-Qaeda core. I got to the city of Timbuktu in January of 2013 that had been in the capital of this Al-Qaeda Emirate in northern Mali. And locals led me to the buildings that they had occupied. And in these these buildings, I found thousands of pages of documents that the group had left behind. Initially I walked on top of them. I did not recognize the value of them. Um, but eventually I realized these documents belong to the group. Um, I picked them up. I cannot read Arabic, so I had to I had to take them up take them up in trash bags, bring them back to my hotel, and start working with translators to work on them. But what I learned from those documents was a completely different story than what our officials were telling us. I had in my possession letters from the general manager of Al Qaeda who was giving direct instructions to the fighters in Timbuktu about things as as, as minor as making sure to keep on the electricity, because without electricity, the people might revolt against you. And so I realized at that point, that there's something unique that I can contribute um, by essentially going to the terror group itself, through its documents, through its fighters, if I'm able to interview them, and that that would be a worthwhile line of inquiry
0: and the isis files reveals amazing things about the, their governance structure they they were taking land away from people who were not yes. sunni it reveals they were making uh, birth certificates sure. for people uh, sure. and it, it, it's wild stuff sure
1: we we've gotten into the habit of um of referring to the Islamic State, of course it has the word state in its name, as a so-called state, right? And we believe that it's not really a state. But in fact, in the documents that I found um, in Iraq, uh, and this is is documents, 15,000 pages of records that I found over five different trips, what you find is that this is a group that had established 14 different ministries. Everything from the Ministry of Agriculture to the Ministry of Public Works to the Ministry of the Treasury to the Ministry of Defense, much like... Much like any government that you would find around the world, uh, they issued birth certificates. They made sure that children, before enrolling in school, had their full their full vaccinations uh, taken care of. You might even say that, in some ways, um, they were more scientifically minded than some than some communities, perhaps in California. Um, uh, they picked up the garbage. Uh, they uh, they made sure that that people were not overloading the electricity grid. And at the same time, they were incredibly brutal and carried out war crimes, raped women, beheaded people. Um, uh, we believe sometimes that those two things cannot coexist, and yet they did.
0: What do you have to say about the places that where U.S. and coalition forces have, have taken back? Mm-hmm. Um, Raqqa, Mosul. You take a look at a picture of one of these places, right. and it looks like a lot of rubble, and That's then you right. kind of move on and don't think about it again. But yeah. uh, these people saw ISIS Come in and fighting. They saw them go out in fighting, and they're left with what?
1: And they're left with what? This is the real tragedy of of the fight to take back territory from the Islamic State, because these fighters um, are embedded inside the population, uh, because they're hiding in an urban environment. In the end, the only way that the coalition was able to take back some of these cities, um, in, in a, in a timeline that, that seemed to make sense was by essentially destroying large swaths of those cities. Western Mosul, uh, was the, was, was the area that ISIS made its last stand in, basically in, in Iraq, uh, in Mosul. When I walked into that city, it was, that part of the city, it was literally the most destroyed area of the world that I think I have ever seen. The senior American general who was leading uh, the fight against ISIS said that it was the worst urban combat he had seen in in, in 35 years uh, of his career. The comparisons that were being made were to World War II, um, to, to the most famous battles of World War II. And that is the problem. These areas a year later are still not being uh, properly, um, properly um, inhabited. Uh, and so they've become ghost towns. And that speaks to the uncertain future that we are facing, which is that these populations now no longer have a home. What will become of them?
0: What about recruitment? This kind of leads into recruitment, which uh, the Islamic State seems pretty good at. They, they're good at it internationally. Yeah. I'm sure they're good at it locally. Yes. What What are, are, do they maintain the ability to do this? I think the
1: loss of the territory um, is is indeed a very big hit to their to their recruitment effort. The presence of the caliphate was this inspirational thing uh, that drew people from quite literally over 100 different countries. 40,000 foreign fighters f- uh, flocked to Iraq and Syria to join uh, this group. The loss of that territory means that they can no longer make that claim. And in fact, the number of new recruits coming into Ar- in Iraq and Syria has, has come down to almost nil. So That remains a question. How are they going to recruit now when they had promised this caliphate that at least territorially in Iraq and Syria no longer really exists? How are they going to continue to do that?
0: You really drilled down to the personal level on recruitment in the podcast Caliphate. Yes. And you talked with a particular uh, Canadian uh, man who who got recruited. Did you come to any conclusions about why people do it?
1: The conclusions I've come to is that much of what we think about this group is often wrong. So Abu Huzaifa, Abu Huzaifa al Kanadi, which was the, the, the code name that the, that the Canadian um, wanted to be known by, he's a young man from a Pakistani immigrant background, but he had grown up in Canada. Um, he, told, he tells us very clearly in the podcast that he had never faced any sort of harassment or discrimination as a Muslim in Canada. I think that we believe that young Muslim men uh, from the West who joined this group are doing so because they 're being mistreated here um, they're they 're not fitting into society they 're not finding their place um, and as a result they 're they 're easy fodder for for this group He says the the opposite he says that he was treated very well he um, uh, all of his Canadian neighbors and classmates were extremely nice to him and instead, what drew him in was the Syrian civil war. It was the image of other Muslims being victimized uh, in Iraq and Syria that tore his heart out. And if you think back to some of the most Awful images that we've seen coming out of the Syrian conflict: the children gasping for air uh, during the chemical attacks, the little boy sitting at the edge of of an ambulance with with his hair uh, all over the place and with uh, and, and with blood all over all, all over his face. Um, the 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 image of the father uh, breaking down, weeping over the body of his that child. We all feel that. We all, as human beings, we feel this enormous pathos when we see that. But ISIS, what it has done is it it, it has been able to weaponize that sentiment of of of, of pain and turned it into into an action, what they say to their recruits is: This is the West that is doing this. This is America that is doing this. In fact, those barrel bombs are 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 raining down on the population of Syria from from the Assad government, not from a Western government. But put that aside, they manage to make it look as if the West is behind that. And they call out to Muslims around the world and say, your brothers and sisters are hurting, and it is your responsibility to come and save them. And it is that call that I think is incredibly incredibly evocative uh, to people.
0: Rukmini Kalamaki is the New York Times foreign correspondent who's been covering ISIS and Al Qaeda since 2014. You can see her tomorrow night at Dominican University at 7 p.m. If you need more information, you can go to events.dom.edu. And uh, amazing story! I didn't even get to talk to you about starting at the Daily Herald, which is an, <laughs> an amazing thing. You you work at the Daily Herald. I worked for a at the Daily
1: Herald. I was there from 2001 to 2003. It's it's really my first job in journalism. I. Um, I sent out a hundred, you know, letters to to the top 100 newspapers by circulation, and the Herald, bless them, were the only ones that offered me an internship. Um, and so I showed up. Uh, in it was actually October 2001, so almost exactly 17 years ago. Um, I showed up. Uh, I. I I got a roommate in Rogers Park, um, and okay. I began covering Streamwood, Illinois. And my my very first assignment I'll never forget was covering the Christmas tree lighting ceremony in Streamwood, Illinois.
0: From Streamwood Isis, natural from, progression.
1: From Streamwood Isis. Yes.
0: Thanks a lot for joining us, Rukmene Kalamaki from the New York Times. Thank you. Coming up after the break, we'll talk with Naomi Klein and talk about Puerto Rico. I'm Jerome McDonnell. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for Puerto Reconstruction, our regular Monday segment on the recovery in Puerto Rico. Writer Naomi Klein has spent some time in Puerto Rico with people who are reimagining a new Puerto Rico. Her new short book is The Battle for Paradise, Puerto Rico Takes on Disaster Capitalists. And thanks for joining us, Naomi Klein.
2: Thank you, Jerome. Glad to be with you.
0: I wanted to start from, uh, you know, maybe 20,000 feet before the hurricane. And um, you wrote a book about the shock doctrine and you have a little chapter here about shock after shock after shock doctrine about Puerto Rico. Um, what, what is the pre-hurricane shocks that Puerto Rico has gone through in your mind?
2: Um, so, so I should uh, share that after I published The Shock Doctrine in 2007, um, which is a book about how large scale uh, collective crises like huge economic crises or wars or natural disasters have been systematically exploited to push through uh, a, a very pro-corporate agenda that further enriches the already very wealthy um, and really takes advantage of the fact that in these moments of profound crisis, when people are, are uh, necessarily focused on the daily emergency of, of, of their life, of staying alive, um, it is possible to do a kind of an end run around democracy. Um, and as soon as I published The Shock Doctrine in 2007, I started hearing from Puerto Ricans telling me that I was missing a chapter um, because the, the, at that time. Puerto Rico was in the midst of a profound economic crisis uh, that was really um, deepened in 2006. And it was used to actually just um, the the economic crisis got so bad in Puerto Rico in 2006 that the government was uh, briefly shut down. Um, Schools were closed completely uh, for a few days. Um, And then it just got worse through the debt crisis. Uh, And uh, ultimately in 2016, Uh, The PROMESA law was passed, um, which uh, many of your listeners will be familiar with. um, But this is, uh, under the Obama administration, a, a quite extraordinary law that just did away with any pretext of self-government in Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico is a colony. It doesn't actually have um, the ability to self-govern because Puerto Ricans don't vote for the U.S. president, don't have an elected representative in Congress. But there was some pretext of self-government through the Puerto Rican governor and legislature. And what happened with PROMESA is that The debt crisis was used to uh, put Puerto Rico's economy essentially in the hands of an unelected uh, management control board that, in in Puerto Rico, is called the Junta. So that was what was going on in Puerto Rico before Maria hit, and that body uh, imposed really quite um, brutal uh, austerity measures on the island.
0: Now, uh, Puerto Rico is an interesting place. Um, It has a lot of possibilities. You would think it would be. Uh, a place where it could be self-sustaining on food, on energy. A lot of people have seen Hawaii increase its amount of renewable energy dramatically because energy costs are so high on an island. But none of that's happened on Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico is a place that is importing all its food, all its energy. It has all these choke points that are, make it extremely vulnerable. It's, uh, there's a weird thing going on there.
2: There is. And, and, and Puerto Ricans often refer to themselves as the world's oldest colony, um, dating back 500 years to, to colonial rule and this seamless handover uh, to, to U.S. control. Um, and that matters because colonialism is a system uh, to extract wealth for the motherland, for the homeland from the colonies. That's what colonial economies are set up to do, to enrich Others, Um, and so this is why this island that has incredibly fertile soil imports eighty-five percent of its food, most of it from the United States, because it is treated as a captive market for U.S. food manufacturers and growers. Um, This is why this island, these islands, this archipelago that is that that are bathed in sun, lashed by winds, surrounded by waves, um, and and could fully power their own economy through renewables which are which have free inputs once you make the initial investments instead import ninety eight percent of its energy through fossil fuels Puerto Rico doesn 't have fossil fuels, so it 's all imported and so it is a, once again a captive market uh, for fossil fuel interests uh, so you know i don 't think you can understand the strangeness of the Puerto Rican economy without understanding colonialism and 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 the ways in which the economy was set up to enrich others, when Maria hit, the extraordinary vulnerabilities of a colonial economy were really exposed in one fell swoop. Because um, when you are importing all of your food through a single port, and that port is then is then knocked out through hurricane force winds, um, then the the extraordinary precariousness of this whole system is laid bare. Same with fossil fuels, um, and uh, and and that's uh, why. I, you know, I, I, uh, in in my book, I quote Dalma Cartagena, who is one of the leaders of the agroecology movement uh, in Puerto Rico. This movement to shift Puerto Rico to an to to an economy that grows its own food sustainably. And she said uh, a while back, uh, Maria hit us hard, um, but it it stiffened our our spine. She said, you know, it 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 uh, reinforced our beliefs because. Many people understood that this system didn't make any sense before, Maria, and were already trying to shift to a more sustainable, um, more sovereign economy. Uh, but, but when all of these vulnerabilities were laid bare by the storm, it, it's, it has become an impetus for a lot of people in Puerto Rico to, to push for that transition even harder.
0: How is that working against what the authorities in Puerto Rico have been encouraging over the years? Because um, they talk about a visitor economy in Puerto Rico that is trying to attract high-income people, and they – passed a, a lot of, you know, more tax breaks for high-income people, and you quote the billionaire hedge fund Madison manager John Paulson as saying, you can essentially minimize your taxes in a way you can't do anywhere else in the world in Puerto Rico. Um, they're, they're trying to, there's something going on there where they're attracting, you know, the the, the forces that are the complete opposite of what you're describing.
2: Right, so... You know the way I describe it is that there there's these dueling visions of a utopia battling out battling it out in Puerto Rico, and they really are not compatible with one another because there's not that much land um, and you know if it's going to be used to grow food and and you know have re- community controlled renewable energy, you know then it can't be used to massively expand the tourism industry or this broader visitor economy that you're describing, which is, Uh, you know, a extremely extractive model that is very much in line with the kind of extraction of wealth from Puerto Rico that I've been describing. But this is the, the newer form is taking advantage of Puerto Rico's exceptional legal status as a colony. And the fact that Puerto Ricans already don't pay if you're in Puerto Rico, you don't pay federal income tax. But then the Puerto Rican government passed a a, a law 20 and law 22 in the midst of the economic crisis that was designed to um, appeal to what governor Ricardo Rossello refers to as the human cloud. So this um, class of very wealthy individuals who can work anywhere so long as they have access to data. And his pitch is come to Puerto Rico. I will shower you with tax breaks a 4% corporate tax, um, which is, you know, when you think about the fact that Trump cut t- corporate taxes to 20%, Puerto Rico is offering 4%. So that's a lot better. They're also offering, you know, zero taxes on interest, dividends, capital gains. Um, this has been particularly appealing to the Bitcoin crowd, um, who, uh, you know, are very worried that if they cash out Their cryptocurrencies, they will get hit with a very you know heavy tax bill. So a lot of them are moving to Puerto Rico for part of the year, establishing residency there, changing the address of their businesses so that they can take advantage of these extraordinary tax breaks. But this is a huge problem for Puerto Ricans because they need a tax base very badly um, because they have to. You know, if we think about what caused um, all of those deaths in Puerto Rico, uh, you know, we know that they're in the thousands from credible research it wasn't just the storm, it was the intersection of the storm with a weak and neglected public sphere. Um, It was this, uh, it was an electricity grid that had been so neglected, so many workers had been fired, so many basic upgrades had not been done, that when the storm hit, it knocked it out completely. Um, So if the business, you know, if the if the future of Puerto Rico is attracting tax dodgers, that does not solve Puerto Rico's most pressing problem.
0: I'm talking with Naomi Klein. Her new book is The Battle for Paradise, the Puerto Puerto Rico Takes on the Disaster Capitalists. Uh, You became involved with a group of people, originally university professors, who'd who'd helped with the university strike that was going on before uh, the hurricane hit. And this has blossomed into a coalition of people who are working for, for something different in Puerto Rico. Could you tell us about them?
2: Yes, absolutely. So, so this book, um, "The Battle for Paradise," all of the money, the advances, the the royalties from English, French, Spanish versions of the book, a hundred percent goes to Puerto Rico. So, this is not an exercise in disaster capitalism. I don't see a cent of this, um, and I'm doing this because this quite extraordinary coalition emerged while I was in Puerto Rico. I was really lucky to attend. This gathering um, in a place called Mariana, which people may have heard about, because Mariana made the news when this was one of the most neglected communities in Puerto Rico. Yeah, you know, they got no relief for a very long time. Then finally, you know, FEMA showed up with skittles and and it crackers, and in the meantime, the community self organized and. Um, and the reason why people might have heard about it is because they were ser- serving 600 hot meals a day through this community-run kitchen. They installed their own solar panels. They got their own internet uh, system hooked up. And when, when I was there, they still didn't have power. They still didn't have water. Uh, um, they didn't have power through the grid. They had set up uh, a rain, rain barrel cistern. So they were really living this sort of uh, sustainable economy. They'd built it from the ground up. And they hosted this meeting of a couple hundred people from across the island, 60 organizations present. So it was everyone from um, you know, teachers and teachers' organizations and unions uh, to other um, uh, people who had set up similar self-organized uh, community kitchens and healthcare centers, um, it, p- people who, who have been fighting for a change in, in the agricultural system to this ag- agroecology model. So a very, very broad coalition came together and they decided to form this group called Junta Gente uh, and come up with a people's platform for the island that would really take on disaster capitalism and what we've been talking about, this idea that the way to fix Puerto Rico is to hand it over uh, to uh, tax dodgers and privatize the electricity and close hundreds of schools. So they're coming together not just to resist that vision, but to propose their own vision. And the fact that they've been able to do this under such dire circumstances, to me, is something I've never seen before in other disaster zones that I've Reported from, so uh, I decided that since they're so outmatched economically, the least I could do is try to get you know a, set, a steady revenue stream away.
0: Uh, what kind of vision is it that they have for Puerto Rico? How do they get in from A to B if you if the island is currently it's economically controlled by by this um, this other junta?
2: Well, a, a big part of the, the coalition um, is is challenging the legitimacy of Puerto Rico's debt. So, you know, one of the partners of of the coalition is, uh, the group that's been calling for an audit of Puerto Rico's debt and arguing that if we actually look at how this debt was accumulated, um, what we find are are extraordinarily predatory financial instruments that are actually illegal under Puerto Rican law, many of them. Um, so they're arguing uh, for, uh, for an audit and ultimately an erasure of large parts of the debt, um, and if you do that, then you don't need a junta, uh, you don't need that fiscal control board, which is uh, really overseeing the bankruptcy of Puerto Rico, uh, and is responsible to its creditors, not its people. Uh, so on the one hand, you have uh, you have those parts of the vision, which are really about a precondition for the rest of it, which is real self-determination and a deeper sovereignty. Um, you know, there are certainly people in the coalition who are political sovereigntists, but I think there's been something of a choice to focus on uh, you know, what, what, what I heard people describe as multiple sovereignties, so energy sovereignty, not getting your energy from a precarious fossil fuel driven grid, but rather getting it from decentralized community owned and controlled renewable energy, which have shown themselves to be more resilient in the face of, 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 of shocks like Maria. And we are going to see more of them in the context of climate change agroecology, a school system that is actually responsive to Puerto Rico's students um, and gives them a reason to stay on the island. So there are you know many pieces of this. They've been holding town hall meetings across the archipelago to get people's uh, input. Uh, and uh, you know I think the, the biggest challenge uh, for this for this coalition, for this organization, is that because they are committed to democracy, uh, and because they're part- they, they are committed to this participatory model, um, they necessarily move slower than the disaster capitalists that they're up against, you know, who are not consulting with anyone and are just coming in with their prepackaged solutions.
0: Um, how long do you think it's going to take for Puerto Rico to to get to where it needs to go? It, it seems like um, there's been an awakening about Puerto Rico uh, in the United States and some a lot more people are thinking about its status, about Uh, about the predatory uh, fiscal control board, uh, but it needs some kind of um, political movement that uh, seems epic in proportion.
2: Well, I don't know if it's epic, but there does need to be certainly a political expression that is connected to these grassroots movements. And it's, you know, it's not so different from some of what's going on, um, in, in, the democratic party right now, where you have a lot of movement activity, um, and a somewhat of a lack of clarity about what the electoral expression of all of the movement activity is, whether it's a migration, um, you know, or, or, you know, against sexual assault, um, and, you know, there's this is certainly a time of extraordinary political engagement, but it isn't exactly clear on, on, on what the electoral expression of that is. And, and it isn't clear in Puerto Rico either. And I would agree that that's certainly uh, it's certainly urgent. Uh,
0: do you how do you see what kind of engagement do you want to have with Puerto Rico going forward?
2: Um, well, you know, I've been in dialogue uh, with you mentioned this group of academics who uh, have been resisting disaster capitalism in Puerto Rico now for, for quite some time. And, um, you know, I'm committed to, to continuing to, to support these initiatives um, through the book and through my writing, and uh, I hope to return and do some new reporting soon. Uh, you know, I've been, I've been studying the transformative power of crisis for better and worse for a decade and a half now. Uh, and I think what's going on in Puerto Rico has has lessons not that that reach well beyond uh, the 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 borders of of the island because you have all of these intersecting crises that are not unique to to Puerto Rico, crises driven by by financialization, um, austerity, and now climate change. and so if if Puerto Ricans are successful in, Showing that there is a way of responding to this five alarm fire that they are living through that actually gets at the root causes uh, of, of what's driving the crisis in the first place, um, where they're able to build infrastructure that is more resilient in the face of the shocks that are going to be hitting everybody in the context of climate change. I think they can be a really important uh, beacon to the world.
0: Naomi Klein is the author of The Battle for Paradise, Puerto Rico takes on the Disaster Capitalists, and uh, all the proceeds from the book go to the organization Junta Hinte, which you can find online as well. Uh, Naomi Klein is going to stay with us, and in a moment we will make her put on her hat as Gloria Steinem Endowed Chair in Media, Culture, and Feminist Studies at Rutgers University and talk about the Kavanaugh Affair. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Before the break, we were talking with Naomi Klein about her new book, The Battle for Paradise. Puerto Rico Takes on the Disaster Capitalists. We thought we'd take a few moments to talk with Naomi about what's happening with the Kavanaugh Affair. Naomi was recently named the Gloria Steinem Endowed Chair in Media, Culture, and Feminist Studies at Rutgers University. And you did talk about this on the um, the the podcast on uh, the Intercept uh, channel, and you talked about this being uh, the Kavanaugh affair, about being about a pro corporate court about protecting plutocracy. Is, how do you read this?
2: Well, I think the point I was making there is is that the stakes of, the stakes of this uh, appointment for the Republicans are extraordinarily high and. Um, I think a lot of the focus is rightly on the stakes for, uh, reproductive rights and freedoms. Um, but that's my stake. Um, and, and, and I think if we look at Kavanaugh's record, uh, um, and even his, his, you know, an area of particular concern to me is climate change and his, um, record supporting coal companies. Uh, it's, it's, it's very concerning, um, but, you know, I think these, this past week has been, you know, it's, it's just been an absolute roller coaster of emotions for everybody. Um, I'm trying to find some silver lining in, in any of this. And, and I, I do see one in just the starkness of the double standards around who is allowed to be enraged in this culture uh, and the norms around anger and, you know, I think we're really on the precipice of a of a tidal wave of women's anger, but not only women's anger, just anybody who experiences extraordinary double standards within the legal system, which is certainly true um, for African-Americans. And, you know, I think that the, the heart of this, which is whether or not there is going to be justice uh, for people at the highest court in the highest court of the land i mean that's 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 the that's the stakes um and you know he is but a microcosm of that and you know i think this is really going to be a catalyst and and you know i I think one of the things that we're going to see happen is people are going to just decide to show their anger i think women are going to be Deciding to get angry in public in a way that women are taught not to do because what? it was so outrageous to see how angry Kavanaugh was allowed to be and how accommodating um, the person who he allegedly assaulted um, was what was felt she needed to be. Uh,
0: you know, it's interesting that so many uh, women voted for President Trump, one of the more white, so women, many white women, white women yep. voted for mm-hmm. President Trump mm-hmm. and Right now, there's an economist poll that says that 55 percent of Republicans uh, hold that even if Brett Kavanaugh sexually assaulted a woman when he was in high school, that would not disqualify him from serving on the Supreme Court. Are are these two things intersecting, <laughs> that, that there is a certain um, it, you know, protection that is going on for these people? They want to perpetuate a, a privileged thing. And that is uh, that includes white women too.
2: Well, I think there's a lot of. Uh, I mean, that is that was a very d- disturbing statistic to read. Um, but frankly, I think par- part of it reflects the normalization of this kind of behavior, right? Um, you know, when you see these interviews with mothers, of, you know, of of sons. You know, saying, "Well, she just needs to get over it," and and um, and you know, this 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 kind of experience is so prevalent, uh, and a lot of women have been forced to bury it, get over it, tell themselves it didn't really matter, um, and just normalize it. So I you know I don't think we know yet how this moment is going to be metabolized because it is a, a moment where people are trying to shift the culture. And 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 say unequivocally that this idea that it somehow doesn't matter um, because you you did it when you were you know sixteen or seventeen or because it wasn't a big deal to you it wasn't a big deal to the people who experienced it um, who are on the other end of it you know all of that is being challenged uh, and you know what happens during moments of, of cultural shift is, is is behaviors that were previously normalized and accepted become unacceptable um, so. I'm not sure how firm that idea is going to be, that, that, that we should just bury this. I think we're in flux right now. I think we're in a moment of extreme flux. I think we saw with Roy Moore that Republican women can shift. You know, um, They can reach a point of just enough is enough. We're not going to back this guy no matter what Trump says.
0: It's interesting to compare this situation to something that's happening now in Brazil. They have a far-right presidential frontrunner who's highly aligned with the military, and he has said Mm -hmm. a lot of misogynist things in his past. And uh, there was a huge protest against him this weekend. There Mm -hmm. is a Facebook page that Women United Against Bolsonaro has 4 million people joined. They're taking a very sharp uh, reaction that that, – it just it feels a little different than you know everyone's galvanized here, but the reaction, I, I you know we've had a women's march and things. It doesn't seem it quite as sharp as what's happening in Brazil.
2: Yeah, I mean, look, I think it would be, you know, I think if somebody had called sort of an everyone to the streets this week, um, and we're starting to hear some of those some of those calls, you know, I think a lot of women would show up. Um especially because, you know, what happened with Jeff Flake, I, I thought that was such an extraordinary moment. Because here you have, you know, two women who let themselves be angry, and in a really non performative way, I, you know, I, I one of the things that really struck me in that encounter was, uh, I think it was Jeff Flake's, uh, Jeff Flake himself, or, or maybe it was one of his aides kept saying, you know, the media is here, you can talk to the media, they're they're right here. And the the women weren't interested in that, right? They were like, no, I'm talking to you. I'm talking to you. I want you to look me in the eye. This isn't a performance for the cameras. This is a human encounter and you have to cope with that, right? And that to me was most jarring because we have so little of that these days. There's so much performance. Um, And the fact that that seemed to have a real political impact or some political impact, I think uh is also potentially unlocking something and and making people want to kind of get face to face and not just do this as an expression of um you know online solidarity or online self expression but actually to get you know bodily within the same space as the decision makers as much as possible and I think more and more women are going to be going to Washington this week doing just that
0: ultimately, a lot of people are looking at the FBI investigation and it's limited. Uh, scope as being something that is going to provide cover for Republicans to vote for Kavanaugh. What, what does that do to this? If that's, do you think that's true?
2: Look, I mean, I think it's obviously true that that's how it was intended. Um, And, you know, it's going to be a long week is all I can say. Um, Because you know, every feminist I know um, and all of the large feminist organizations are out there doing their best, doing, throwing everything they have into getting in public the voices that should be heard by this FBI investigation. And I think what we saw with Jeff Flake is that when some of these lawmakers are confronted with the rage of women and the message that is being sent here, um, what a Kavanaugh appointment approval would, what, the message it would send to women uh, about the view of the importance of, of, of sexual assault, of rape. Um, you know, if the message, it, it, you know, they, they have to understand that there's going to be a political cost for that. And right now they're calculating that they can bear that cost. And I think that that calculation is based on a perception that women will just continue to accept this, or a lot of Republican women will continue to accept this, and I'm not so sure that's true. Um, you know, I'm not I'm not positive how much can be accomplished in a week, but I think this is going to be a long and eventful week.
0: Do you think that calculation is is largely like, well, we may we may sacrifice a few uh, Congress people in this round of elections, but we get a a uh, Supreme Court justice for forty years on the court that is going oh. to hold up. Privilege.
2: Look, I think if if that's the calculation the Republicans make, and they ram this through, um, then I think the pressure needs to be on the Democrats to expand the size of the court um, to add a couple more justices. You know that may sound radical, but you know what the Republicans have done is extra. You know when when Obama was still in office um, in in stealing that seat, um, and now if they push through Kavanaugh. I think that the pressure needs to be on those Democrats who always want to take the high road and always want to reach across the aisle to say, no, the stakes are just too high. Add two more justices.
0: And that's something that uh, there is no uh, limit on the justices. Congress can do what it wants if it wants to.
2: Well, that's my understanding. That's my understanding that it is possible, and that it would that that what would mainly stand in the way would be, uh, you know, a feeling among Democrats that they need to sort of take the high road on, on this question, but the stakes are just too high.
0: Um, it, it, does the U.S. really have a democracy? I mean, I come back to the <laughs> beginning point of this: is it, you, it? It doesn't. You you call it a plutocracy?
2: Um. Look, I mean, I've just moved to, to the U S from Canada. Um, I have dual citizenship, but I've never lived here as an adult. And, and, um, you know, as my, as I immerse myself in, in U S politics, I mean, and certainly as an observer, I mean, this is a question that I ask and that, and that I think, um, more and more people are rightly asking about the, the structural ways in which democracy, um, is, is confined, um, and, you know, wh- you know, whether that's within political parties with superdelegates to prevent just, you know, a simple majority from choosing the leader of the party and the way that rigs the game from the get-go, um, you know, or the gerrymandering of districts um, or the electoral college um, and, you know, and, and now the stacking of the Supreme Court. This does not – this is not a good look. Um, and, you know, when – you know, the, the, the book that I wrote before, the book about Puerto Rico is called No, Is Not Enough um, – and it's a look at Trump as uh, a, a a symptom. Uh, not a disease, but, you know, an outgrowth of a very, very broken system. So I think the more we talk about systems as opposed to symptoms, um, you know, the, the better off we'll be.
0: Naomi Klein is the author of The Battle for Paradise. Puerto Rico takes on the disaster capitalists, and she's recently moved to the U.S. and is hanging out at Rutgers University as the Gloria Steinem Endowed Chair in Media, Culture, and Feminist Studies. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about Kavanaugh in Puerto Rico.
2: Thank you. It's my pleasure.
0: Tomorrow we'll talk more about the global feminism movement. Hope you can join us tomorrow for Worldview. I'm Jerome McDonnell. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.